Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. Our guest is the journalist Matthew Dancona, who spoke to Hannah McInnes a few weeks back about identity, ignorance and innovation. His book proposing new ways of understanding the politics of our era. I hope you enjoy it. the book saying that this is a moment of extraordinary peril, promise and potential, waiting only for a generation with courage to seize the opportunity and embrace the glorious uncertainty of what lies ahead. And our minds leap, I think, to the crisis that we're in as a perilous moment. But you're talking about a wider moment. I, I know that. But I wonder to what extent, if any, you were motivated by this crisis and whether it's a time to examine where we are, hope for change, a sort of moment within within a moment? It's a great question. And the interesting, I suppose the the honest answer is that the book had its origins in my exasperation during the Brexit debate, that that the whole of politics was becoming kind of compacted into a single issue, which was immigration, which in turn was serving as a proxy for fear of change. And this was becoming very, it was kind of, um, if if you like, it was limiting political discourse in a way that was becoming quite dangerous. So that, that was part of it. And as I was in sort of getting into writing the book, suddenly, you know, what do you know, a global pandemic. And that, of course, changed the terms of trade. Suddenly the horizon filled with this mountain range of death and and upheaval and things that are unprecedented in our lifetimes. And I suppose the challenge was to try and look both at the way that this exposed weaknesses in the way that we organise society and our politics, but also because I think it's important to be constructive, not deluded, but constructive, to try and understand what opportunities and challenges there would be when we emerged into whatever this leads to. And I hesitate to use the words the new normal because they've become rather debased already. I, I, I'm not sure what it's going to be. And also I hesitate to use the word post-pandemic because I think that we're going to be living with COVID in some shape or form for quite some time. But there's no doubt that the vaccine is a game changer. It's going to enable exit. Uh, We need it to be a global vaccination rollout, not just a nationalised one. But it does, variants permitting, show us a way out of where we are. And I think that mandates us both ethically and politically and socially to look at imaginative ways of rebuilding the world, you know, in the landscape into which we'll all come sort of twitching and, and blinking from our hunches of captivity, hopefully sooner rather than later. But you do um, say at the beginning of the book that often moments in the past, which might have been a wake-up call, turned out to be, you know, anything of the sort. Yeah. You, lo- you look at the financial crash, a lot of people sort of, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing at that time and, and nothing really changed. And you, you start the book, I, I went to the end and now I go to the beginning with a quote from The Big Short which I'd like to thank you for because I actually went to see it for the first time and it's a staggeringly brilliant film. But I have a feeling is the quote, in a few years, people are going to be doing what they always do when the economy tanks. They will be blaming immigrants and poor people. And I just wonder if you could explain, you just, you mentioned immigration briefly in your first answer, but if you could explain the significance of that quote of why we always come to that. Well, because it's easy and we live in a populist era which is to say we live in an era where politicians have regrettably embraced the idea that there are simple answers to complex problems. And part of that is when a problem doesn't get resolved, 
quickly and easily, you attribute blame. And who is around to be blamed? And there are various groups of people. I mean, the liberal elite is always a good one. But as the Steve Carell character, Mark Baum, uh, in The Big Short that you mentioned, says, you know, immigrants and poor people are easy targets. And I felt that during the whole experience of Brexit, that one of the most dispiriting things was that everything seemed to be loaded onto the, the backs of immigrants and their descendants, because actually what the population that people describe as immigrants is often people who are, you know, the grandchildren of, of great-grandchildren in some cases of, of immigrants. And this, it strikes me as a dead end because, of course, every society needs to have sensible border management. I mean, that goes without saying, it's just part of statecraft. But there's a difference between that, there really is a difference of kind between sensible border management and this kind of weaponized approach we have now where almost any problem is laid at the feet of an immigrant population and their descendants, whom we invited to this country to perform economic tasks that weren't being performed otherwise, and we need more than ever. So it's a kind of a self-harming mentality, this. It's also an issue that really has been, was resolved more than half a century ago, that Britain was going to have an economy that was heavily dependent upon migrant labour. And so the big pretense of Brexit was that, that somehow this had been forced upon the British people. Not at all. You know, every British person through thousands of, of economic micro decisions is part of this decision, this decision to live in, a, in which I personally like anyway, to live in a diverse society. And so the, there was that terrible sense that we'd reached a point where politics was only going to be about the attribution of blame. And, you know, a recent example was Priti Patel mobilising the Royal Navy to take on, you know, the most enfeebled and sad people you could possibly imagine, you know, wretchedly using shovels to row their way in dinghies to the shore across the channel. You know, the idea that you need to use the might of the Royal Navy against these people seems to me to dramatise the problem completely. That's the bad stuff, because it, it's not really about practical government. It's about making a point, scoring a point, getting a hit on social media, getting headlines in the red tops and so on. This is not actually governance and it doesn't really move the uh, it's not a way of dealing with the the issue itself. And, and one of the running themes in the book is that populists are terrible at getting stuff done. They're great at campaigning. I mean, amazing at winning elections. And as we saw in 2016 with the Brexit referendum, great at winning referendums. But when it comes to actually doing stuff, they're not so good. And that's a real issue for complex societies that have hugely difficult challenges ahead in the 21st century. When we've looked at some of the challenges and some of the solutions, I, I'd like to come back to that thing about getting stuff done, return to that. But you want to move away. The point is to move away from immigration to these three other eyes: the identity, ignorance and innovation. But just before we, we come to those, and it's part of it, you say so central to your beliefs and to the, to the book, really, is to dismiss this idea. We often think that politics 
swings in a pendulum. So you have one extreme, then you react against that and you go to the other extreme. But you're, you very much um, are of the belief that it's sequential. And I wonder if you could explain. No, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, I, I was born in 1968 and turned 21 in 1989, which from which you can deduce that I'm a child of the Cold War, literally. And I was brought up in a period when, to a certain extent, the, the pendulum did oscillate between left and right. But politics since 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall has been very different. It's been sequential in, in the sense that what really matters is not what's left or right, but what's next. So Tony Blair's great insight was to realise that what mattered was to be post-Thatcher rather than anti-Thatcher. And Obama realised that what mattered was to, not to be anti-Bush, but post-Bush. And even Trump, in his own sort of horrific, vulgarised and, you know, ultimately racist way, understood as a showman, because he's, a, he's an entertainer, he's not a businessman, that what mattered was to keep the plot running. And he understood that better than Hillary Clinton, who really wanted to restore a kind of centrist, corporate, democratic version of, of, of politics. Trump understood that, that what was needed was change of a sort, but something that, that moved the story on. And politics has become narrative in that sense. It is always about the next chapter. So to take a, a smaller example, you know, the challenge facing Keir Starmer as, as leader of the Labour Party is it's not enough for him to be not Corbyn. It's not enough for him to be not Boris. He has to be post both of them. He has to make an offer to the British people that truly persuades them that he has an answer to the, the questions that they will be asking in 20, late 2021 and 22 and beyond. And that's a complete change in the terms of trade. The politicians that succeed will be those who identify the very simple questions that voters are asking now and will be asking tomorrow, not what they want to go back to, not restorationism, but actually the vividly contemporary questions that face people in the now. In a sense, that's, of course, what informs your first chapter in a big book about identity politics, because rather than seeing it as something that will be a fad, you know, a fad and disappear again, you're very much, as you say, one of the chapters, I think I've quoted this right, is it's here to stay. And that's a good thing. But before, perhaps you could define identity politics, because, you know, it's one of those things we talk about a lot. And I think often people talk about it without really understanding what the definition of it is. Oh. Well, of course, in a way, politics has always been identity politics yeah. in the sense that there's always been identification with groups and nations and affiliations to communities and churches and goodness knows what. So there's, there's nothing specifically new about that. But what has become much more prevalent, a turbocharged even, especially by social media, has been people identifying themselves by their affinity with other people. Um, and we've seen a number of, of, of you know, really you know, often exhilarating examples of this. I mean, the Me Too moment in 2017 is an is obvious example. Then there was uh, BLM last year in, in reaction to the horrific killing of George Floyd. I think in some ways, although it, it's, it's slightly different, I think Extinction Rebellion provided youth with a kind of digital and then on the streets meeting place to define themselves generationally outside of mainstream politics. And most recently, again, in response to a horror, the killing of Sarah Everard has led to a 
extraordinary upsurge of of women sharing their experiences online and demanding action. And my my general, uh, I mean, obviously the book does not include Sarah Everard uh, because it was published before the tragic events in her life. But I but I I, I think it is yet another example of the way in which what we call identity politics can actually have a positive and constructive role, which is it's a reproach to the idea that the system is working. It enables, and this would not have been possible without 21st century digital technology, it enables people who are disaggregated all over the world to join together via hashtags or whatever means and say it is wrong to claim that there is a level playing field. You know, it is, it is incorrect to say that the system works. The system is rigged. Meritocracy is not working as you claim it is. The universal rights that should underpin liberal democracy are a very good idea, but they remain for many groups an idea. And we, you know, we do not experience them and we are not going away. And as someone who is to the core, if you like, a classical liberal, someone who believes profoundly in liberal democracy, I think it's incumbent upon me and, and people like me to take this on board. And I, I think it's a, the critique that identity politics offers of liberal democracy is one of the best chances liberal democracy has of surviving and thriving in a world that is, in many respects, hostile to it. So I embrace a lot of what, it, you know, not uncritically, I have differences with identity politics, but I think it is, it's a big mistake of some progressives, some centrists, to dismiss identity politics as a fad or a blip or simply a, a, an upsurge of a disorganized outrage. It's much more important than that. It's much more cohesive than that. There's an intellectual coherence to it, and it is not going to go away. So we need to get its measure. We need to respect the views that it, that it represents, and we need to find ways of you know, incorporating the genuine and, and authentic lessons it has into the way we do politics. I mean, in a way, it's surprising. And again, I think you say this in the book that, you, you of course, identity politics isn't new, as you've said. And, you know, this one is new, the role of tech, you talk about the role of universities in making this a different form of identity politics. But also, there's no doubt that it's it's on the rise, that it's sort of becoming very predominant force, as you've said. Given the amount of injustice that there's been for so long, you know, you wonder, as you do, why actually it's taken so long to be such a dominant force? You know, what, what's fueling it now that, that wasn't there before? I don't think the anger that's, uh, and the sense of injustice that it reflects is new at all. You know, I, I've been rereading The Handmaid's Tale, which was published in 1985, and I think it's, it's fascinating how the re-emergence of The Handmaid's Tale as a as a television series and, and the, the, the sequel is now out and, and the whole culture that there isn't around it is, is, is kind of a metaphor in that the outrage isn't new, it's just that it's been given a vector. So the Me Too story was, was, was not, it wasn't that it was new that men harass women at the workplace and use their power and their privilege. That's as old as humanity. What was new was the ability of women who were in that situation, in that predicament, to speak up and also to feel the, the strength, the solidarity of speaking up together. And so I, I always think that, you know, social media gets a often justified, you know, bad rap. 
But in fact, without it, these movements would have been impossible. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein is in prison today. You know, Bill Cosby is in prison today because of these movements. And that's really important. Not enough has been done. So you look at the other side, to the flip side, you know, one of the disappointments so far has been that the Me Too upsurge of 2017 and 2018 has not been followed through by practical, gritty, granular change in human resources departments and companies and so on. And, and one of the, you know, one of the cause of the book is, is for practical reform, you know, yeah. measurable reform. And I, I think we are not there yet at all. I mean, perhaps that's because, as you go on to say, there, there's a lot of time wasted, you know, arguing between various different groups. You talk, you talk about contemporary liberalism. You say it needs a thorough reboot and it hasn't reacted well to the modern condition. I know that you're exploring this a lot in the book. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, what is the right approach? How should contemporary liberalism engage with it, embrace it and, you know, go forward with alongside identity politics? Well, engage with it, I think, is the key. And, and, and what my critique of identity politics is that it, it gets horribly sidetracked by a mostly fruitless discussion about who, who's allowed to speak about what. So it's a kind of like a points of order debate, you know, like a kind of primary contest that who's allowed to talk about this subject and that subject. Now, of course, part of any, uh, you know, any citizen's job in a pluralist society is to listen. You know, listening is a forgotten art. So, you know, I'm a 53-year-old white male. I can't speak on behalf of a young gay woman of colour. I can't speak on behalf of her. That, that would be ridiculous. That would be a ridiculous claim. It would be preposterous. But I can and I should speak with her. And I think that the the missing link in the identity politics argument is this argument that everyone should stay in their lane and only talk about the things that apply to them and their lived experience. And of course, you know, part of any inquiry into any social problem, any social pathology, is finding out from the people who are at the heart of it, what's going on? You know, I'm a journalist. My, my primary tool is curiosity, or should be, is curiosity and the capacity to listen. So that's unchanged. But what I, what I don't accept is that I can't, write about, speak about, think about, contribute to these debates. And indeed, no society can operate on that basis where, as it were, we, we have a silo of people talking about trans and a silo of people talking about feminist issue and a silo of people talking about men's rights. Uh, I mean, this would, be a this, is, this would be a disastrous stockaded view of the world and, and it's not going to happen. And it doesn't help those who are involved in the social justice movements that are you know, prevalent in, in, in the identity politics world to get so hung up on, on the questions of speech and who can talk about what. It's an interesting fact that almost every progressive movement up to now has been radically in favour of free expression. So if you go back to Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, W.B. Du Bois, you know, the great writer on black rights, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, a uh, congressman who died not so long ago, Obama, you know, they've all been, you know, very, very much in favour of free expression as, a, as key to giving the disenfranchised the ability to speak up. This is the first time, 
you know, in, in living memory, certainly, where you've had a progressive movement that has really not valued free speech as a core uh, liberty. And I think that's dangerous. I mean, you go back to the 60s and the Berkeley free speech movement, and you always you see that all hitherto existing progressive movements have taken free speech very, very seriously, and rightly so. Not to say I'm a free speech absolutist. I don't, you know, I'm not. I believe in obeying the law. I'm in favour of uh, hate crime law and so on. I, that, I have no problem at all with that. But what I'm against is this idea that that, that speech is a sort, of, a sort of side issue. And it's the disastrous idea that free speech is, a, is an issue that only middle-aged white men care about. I mean, I, my first job was at a magazine called Index on Censorship, which I still subscribe to and recommend thoroughly to everyone here. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, magazine and, 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 and movement. And when I started working there, you know, it, the, the, the center of gravity was progressive. The idea that, that you know, this was the, the, the time when Mandela had been released, when the Cold War was ending, when the fatwa against Salman Rushdie was a, an issue that bound liberals of all sorts together. If you were on the side of human progress, you were on the side of the right to speak. And that's been lost. And I think it's a it's a potentially very dangerous loss. And the, just to conclude the thought, the really dangerous reason is that you can't always be sure that the people taking the decisions to suppress speech will be the people who think like you. So a lot of people I know who are very happy for people to de-platform this poor person or ban this person from that university or whatever, were really, really surprised when the MASH report got cancelled. You know, suddenly it was the BBC banning a, or, or cancelling a, a, a left-wing comedy show, which, by the way, I thought was a totally infantile decision. I mean, you know, of course a lot of comedy is going to be left-wing. I mean, you know, what, 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 so what? We were all adults. But you, you have to be very, very careful about embracing the, the mechanisms of speech suppression, because once they're in place and once you sold the pass on that issue, you better be sure that it's you that has your hands on the levers. I mean, it's incredibly complicated, more complicated than I think I, I imagine the, the issue of free speech has, has ever been. I mean, it's on, on the one that you, you quote Jonathan Rauch, if I pronounce that right, in the book, who, who writes so persuasively about what you're saying, of course, the answer to bias and prejudice is, you know, to have pluralism. And it's not if you drive something underground, then you ha have the idea that, you know, it's almost that the job is done. If mm. you drive a debate underground and you and you shut it down, then, you know, how can you move forward? But the reason it's become so complicated is because those of us who, who have always felt free speech is a progressive, you know, fair in a fair society. It's what you, you want and need it's now become associated with a, a very an often the far right and yeah. deep, deeply uncomfortable moment. Absolutely. So it's become very tricky. And I, I want, how do we restore that balance? Because well, free speech as, as, as a word has been sort of co-opted, it feels. I think, I think the way to look at it is this, which is you're right, Anna, that, that, that um, you know, a, a lot of the speech that, that hides behind the free speech defence is actually the kind of speech that any civilized society would shut down. You know, I'm, for example, it's, it's the law in this country that you can't incite racial harassment, you know, or, or racial violence. I mean, it's the law that if you, if you commit a crime that's compounded by 
prejudice, you will be punished more severely. These are, these are not difficult concepts. I personally had no problem with Trump being taken off Twitter because it seemed to me that at that point he was breaching the very clear rules set down by the Supreme Court in, I think, Brandenburg, the ruling Brandenburg, that, you know, inciting in imminent violence is, is, is reasonable grounds for censorship and overrules the First Amendment. So I, I'm not an absolutist on free speech at all. I think it's more a question of where does your predisposition lie? Collectively, your predisposition should lie in favour of free speech. Yet there are obviously going to be circumstances where that's not the case. And indeed, any civilised society always has rules on speech, you know, libel, um, incitement to violence, national security, defamation and so on. These, these are not, unless you're one of these sort of really, really um, deranged libertarians who thinks absolutely anything goes, you're going to be talking about constraints. What concerns me is that it's the first tool in the toolbox a lot of people reach for, which is, right, I don't like this person, so I'm going to make sure he can't appear at my university or in a newspaper. That may, by the way, turn out to be the right decision, but it's not the, it shouldn't be a reflex. It, it should be a decision taken with great care and thought. And that, that's all I'm asking for. Yeah. I'm not asking for a, a kind of, a, a, you know, anarch, an anarchic situation. Um, and, and you're absolutely right that the, 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 the rise of the far right, the continuing existence of the far right has, has posed enormous problems, you know, uh, in this respect. And it's an ongoing discussion. But all I'm pleading for is that we bear in mind that, you know, surrendering uh, free speech is, is not a, a light step to be taken. That's all. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a really interesting subject matter that, quite frankly, we could have done this evening in three sections and definitely <laughs> devoted an hour at least to, to free speech. And you say, you know, multiplicity, which I think is the most important point, is the essence of modern life. And, and it's your point about curiosity. And all of those mean that we need to be able to hear a huge a variety of opinions in order to kind of make decisions and make judgments but i'm going to move on to ignorance which is your uh, which is really important and, and the younger generation i think you're talking mainly about people in their late teens and, and early 20s yes. who you describe as hugely brilliant but but ignorant and ignorant is obviously a, a strong word and even more so when the fact is is clear that you're very very empathetic with those that you right. as, as, as ignorant it's the system that's made them so. So what has happened and, and, and why are you so, which is evident when people read the book, quite furious, passionate about this? Yes, I am. I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, the first point to make is that this is triple underlined, an indictment of my generation, not theirs, and possibly generations slightly older than mine as well, which is that a system that was devised in the late 80s with benign intent, which was to set up standardized testing, rigorous exams, schools inspections, uh, a national curriculum and so on, has become something grotesque, which is that schools have become grade factories. All that matters is the grades you get. You are increasingly uh, just encouraged to regurgitate information rather than you know, absorb knowledge still less pursue wisdom pupils have less and less time to uh 
look at other things to you know the, the, the one one of the words i loathe in 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 curriculum language is enrichment the idea that you know for an hour a week you're allowed to go off and talk about a novel or a piece of music or something as if that's sort of uh, it's, it, there's a tokenism to that which is insulting and it's had terrible consequences uh i mean researching the book was was de very depressing in that respect because it revealed you know the prevalence of mental health problems that uh children suffer as a consequence of the of the great factory culture and one just to give you an example one particular feature of this which i thought was tragic is that the drugs of choice of, of the generation you described, Hannah, are not recreational. They are drugs that enables pupils to work harder. So they take Ritalin so they can stay up late and study. And then even more dangerously, they take Xanax at the weekend. It's a very strong sedative to relax. And Xanax in particular is hugely addictive. So that's what we've consigned our children to and it's it seems to be barbaric but it also seems to me to deny them their sort of birthright to explore and make mistakes and read widely and and listen to music and work out whether they really like physics or they actually secretly prefer history and all the kind of the trial and error that should define teens but it's all it's also as it happens if one wants to look at it in a slightly more policy-based way, it's an incredibly stupid way to prepare young people for what faces them tomorrow. Because as, as society becomes more automated, more governed by AI, the skills that are gonna be required of people are the ability to think critically, the ability to learn to learn, a readiness to have more than, certainly more than one career in a lifetime, you know, work, the working life for the people who are now at school may last until they're 80. So they're going to have to, you know, the, the, the words of lifelong learning, which have hitherto been just a, a, a bit of boilerplate language used by politicians when they're looking for a slogan, is that that's actually going to have to have a meaning. And we now still have a basically the wrecked, ruined system, uh, a sort of residue of a system that was designed for people who would be educated till they were 21, go off and do a career, and then retire until they died. This is a much, much, much more complex society we are now entering. And it needs to give people the ability to develop neurally, culturally, and understand that the world they're entering is going to be one of enormous volatility. Now, I'm not saying abolish standardized tests that would be a step too far what i am saying is that the kind of crazed fixation with standardized tests has to stop i'm interested and slightly just ever so slightly encouraged by talking to some ministers in private about what they're thinking given what's happened during the pandemic with exams, because I think that when Gavin Williamson, the education secretary stood up last year and said there weren't going to be GCSEs and A-levels, a lot of people thought, oh my God, you know, the walls of Jericho will tumble. And certainly that they made a complete mess of the grading system that with the algorithm and so on, that's true. But the broader lesson was, hang on a minute, you know, the, the world didn't end. And actually 
the more intelligent people are thinking, do we really need to centre our, our, our system of education quite so totally upon the end of year examination and you know the, the, the two big sets of hurdles, GCSEs and A-levels. Now, this is very, very, these are very fledgling thoughts. I don't want to get too optimistic, but I do think there is now a debate to be had about how we educate children generally. I mean, we need for a start to make sure that every child in the land has a laptop and access to Wi-Fi. You know, the number of people who during homeschooling had to use the home smartphone, which 9% of households don't have Wi-Fi. A pay-as-you-go smartphone costs £37 a day to operate uh, if you're homeschooling. So that, that essentially created a massive inequality. I think that you know one of the first priorities as we exit this phase of the pandemic should be to find out how we get every single people in the land to have a laptop and install Wi-Fi in their homes. The cost, as against the, the, the kind of money we've been uh, spending in the last year, is nugatory and could easily be paid by a windfall tax on big tech or uh, a small... Uh, levy on every handset. It, the, the, these, that this is the kind of way we need to be thinking. We need children who are able to understand digital literacy, who are able to think critically, who are not just obsessed by pen and pencil tests that were devised in the late 80s. It's a very long time ago. I know I was there. You know, it, it really is time to think afresh. And we owe it, at, you know, to the point about that you started with, I feel, you know, that if I could do anything to encourage that, I will, because it is it is deeply sad to see. And they're such a terrific generation. I mean, the, the way that they're characterized as snowflakes is is quite deplorable. You know, they, they actually face a much tougher set of circumstances, certainly than I did. So so I, I think I think this is a matter of, of, of urgency. And it sounds like this is one area from your conversations and, and generally from, from what you're saying that this is an area where for all the tragedy of the pandemic, we might be able to, this might be ushering a, a moment of change on that front. But yeah. I'm interested, digitally, it's very complicated again, isn't it? Because they are, as as you worry, ill-equipped for the digital world, which there is no option for them, for us all to inhabit. But you, you do go on to describe what you, what you call the digital instant. And one wonders how anyone can be ready for a world like that, which essentially, and you, you have extraordinary statistics, you've spoken to neuroscientists, the digital world fuels, in a way, ignorance or, or stifles curiosity in, its, in a sense. Yes. I mean, I call it the digital instant because I think that the technological revolution that we've been through in the last um 20 years has completely changed our relationship, not just with technology and uh, words and images, but also with time, because we are in, in the devices that we still rather ludicrously call phones. We have a portal to absolutely everything. And particularly young people are bombarded and to some extent trapped by the, you know, the, the, sheer, the sheer number of stimuli that are coming their way all the time. You know, the number of likes they've got on the Instagram page, number of emails they're receiving from their teachers or their counselors or their parents or their doctors or, you know, news about some 
party or you know it, it, it it's everything it's it, the, the sort of concept of a digital detox seems to me to be crazy because it is almost impossible to live a normal life nowadays without access to the information that comes through that single portal and it does it compacts our experience of life and it severs our relationship with both the past and the future so i i mean i think this is this this actually in terms of our sort of our existence as human beings is one of the biggest challenges we faced for a very long time you know in 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 the same way that 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 the invention of the automobile changed our relationship with space the invention of electricity changed our you know the way that we we, we existed on, on almost every front as penicillin did with the way that our bodies existed so this changes what it is to be a human being and there are no glib quick answers to it but i think we have to apprehend the scale of the change it's not enough to say big tech is evil though big tech has a, a lot to answer for and needs to be regulated it's not enough to sort of withhold digital devices from the young and say that's good for them because as i mentioned in the book i remember going to a school where the teachers all sort of held forth about the wickedness of digital technology and how good it was that the children didn't have access to their phones during lessons and then afterwards the kids came up to me and said yeah that's all very well but it's a punishable offence at the school not to be up to date on school emails so which less which instruction are they to listen to i mean that illustrates very clearly to me the the totality of the digital world in which we live and the need to think very hard about how we all operate within it because it is it is it is a transformative change and frankly it's in its infancy i mean once once artificial intelligence really gets going the changes to our lives will be even greater so i think what one of the biggest skills that we'll all need of all ages will be digital literacy and also an understanding that these are not just devices that we turn to when we want to they are they are everywhere and the internet of things when our houses are all effectively you know a device will also you know will 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 as it were complete that process so it's a huge change and it's one that if you care about the idea of cultural inheritance and by by the cultural inheritance i don't mean anything as silly as you know having a flag behind your head when you're on telly i mean the idea that you are in a massively diverse society where there are all these extraordinary strands of culture coming together and you should understand as many of them as you can you know it is absolutely imperative for example that you know if you if you're studying british history you understand the history of british colonialism that um you understand the literature of of other countries as well as the one in which you're born and so on the ease of getting getting access to that is diminishing and i think that is a serious we you know our brains are changing i mean neuroscientists are very clear about this our brains our attention span are changing and so we need to take active measures to try and at least slow that process this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv marquee tv is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, 
and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. I think I mean, it's really important, the f- very significant fact that you said the word change a number of times. And to me, a big takeaway from the book was to try and move away from a natural instinct to feel a bit of a shudder at the thought of change. You know, particularly lots of things, you, you know, you talk about with regard to the digital future. A lot of people fear change. And you talk about, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I'm, I'm pleased to hear you on a podcast. I listened to you on a podcast earlier today and even Raphael Baer couldn't pronounce, but meta, metathesophobia, metathesophobia, is that right? The metathesophobia, the fear of change. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a mouthful, but... Um, but, but what's it, different, uh, what, what, what we are, you saying we're wired to the familiar and it feels to me like something that you're really trying to get out with this book is how we can try and not fear change, embrace change, yeah. And, and, and work out our future with it without, without that shudder that it brings? Well, I think we have to, we have to um, negotiate a new relationship with change, which is that one of the things that Brexit and the Trump 2016 campaign had in common was a, uh, a highly effective message, entirely delusive but effective, that you could somehow reverse change, you know, take back control, said the Brexiteers, make America great again. And it was this idea that there were easy steps that would um, reverse change. You know, Trump made a great deal of how he would reopen Pennsylvania steel mills and coal mines and so on. This was not only complete nonsense, but also hugely cruel because the forces of change that, that have caused those facilities to close are not going to be reversed. And, you know, Brexit whatever you think of it, is not going to change the fact that any developed complex society such as ours is hugely interdependent with the rest of the world. So you can, you can control a certain amount, but the fact remains that if you are dependent, as we are during the, more than ever during the pandemic, upon global supply chains, you know, you, you, you're not totally in control of anything. No one is what you have to do is is work out how to apprehend that change and to respond intelligently to it and you know the final section of the book is is in is entitled innovation and it's really about how some case studies about how you can uh, respond to this world of change whether it's misinformation um greater life expectancy and longevity and the challenges that raises and so on and I think that that is what we have to do is we have to become a species that understands that the pace of change is, is if anything, going to speed up. That's almost etched into the, the technological runes, really. And so as human beings, we need to be armor plated and able to cope with it. And that is, again, a, a big transition in what it means to be human. But this is where we, we, we you know, return to the theme of populism. Populism does not cope well 
with the subtleties of that. You know, people who live in changing societies respond reflexively to politicians who say, we can turn the clock back, we can take you back to where you were before the thing you don't like, but they never can. Governments don't have that kind of power. And oftentimes people don't actually want to go back to the way things were before. What they want is all the benefits of change, but none of the, the, the unsettling bits. And so I think we have, we have to renegotiate our relationship with it. And I mean, just, just to finish off, and I'm, there's questions coming in from the audience, but exactly, you, you said populists are not good at getting stuff done. I wonder then, you know, your book lays out, and we can't go into all of them, as you've said, lots of different, you know, areas of policy that could be looked at in order to sort of deal with change. You, have, you suggest a number of things, and we've talked about a few of them this evening. There are books out, I mean, Manu Shafiq, you were on Start the Weekend last week with her, she has a new social contract. Yeah, interesting. These ideas for change, do you feel any optimism that, that people in, in positions of power will listen to these sorts of ideas that are so important, or do we just move on because they're deaf to them? I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that, one of the sort of intrinsic flaw at the heart of populism is that it doesn't work. You know, it's the, it's the toy you get on Christmas morning <laughs> that is broken by Boxing Day. And it, it is an one should never underestimate it. You know, one of the great lessons of the first quarter of the 21st century is that totally unexpectedly, or not totally unexpectedly, but I mean, I certainly missed it. And, and, and I think, you know, governing elites did too. Populism, which was thought to be a a thing of the past, a thing of the 20th century, had a real revival. And particularly when uh, turbocharged by social media, it is a very, very powerful force. So, you know, to take the, the, the American election, yes, I mean, Biden won and, you know, thank goodness for that. But my goodness, you know, in spite of the most spectacularly bad performance in the pandemic, and urging Americans to inject themselves with bleach. Trump, you know, won more than 75 million votes. And it is arguable that without the pandemic would, would even now be enjoying a second term. So that is an illustration of the continued power of populism. My optimism is based on the fact that I do think that, I mean, going back to the younger generation, for all of the things that they've been through and for all my criticisms of the fact that they, they, they've perhaps got less knowledge um, than, than previous generations, they have tremendous endurance and they have terrific ideals. I mean, if you look at the, the things that interest them, climate change, intergenerational justice, technology, the inequities of globalization and so on, you know, they've really, they've landed as a cohort upon the right things. The interesting bit, and this is where, this is the kind of the, the, the bit that needs, the bridge that needs to be built. The really, really, the best and the brightest are not as interested in Westminster politics as less interested than any comparable cohort I can think of. The Tony Blairs, the David Camerons of tomorrow, the Barack Obamas of tomorrow, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, moving into Westminster. They're, they're, they're campaigning and, and, and doing their own thing. And in the end, you need people to 
hold their nose and move into the political structures for change to happen. Mm. And it's it's not clear to me that that, that you know, very understandably, they don't want to devote their lives to political uh, parliamentary life. And that that's that's a, that is a serious worry to which I don't have an off the shelf answer. But but I'm I'm very optimistic about the spirit of that generation, hugely so. Well, good, because I, I was hoping we could end our section on a, on an optimistic note. Definitely, definitely. Um, but just, there's some audi- there's audience questions, and I um, we'll get through as many as I possible. I've, we've got a little bit of time left. Uh, I hope we've covered actually most of them. But somebody says identity politics usually seems to mean identity such as race, religion, sexuality, but you are using it to mean as as, you, as we've referenced allegiance to a cause or, or campaign. Is that a correct reading of your definition? If so, why the shift? I think you don't suggest that there is a shift. No, I, 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 I think I think um, an identity group can, and often it often is connected to an ethnicity or gender, or in the case of trans, you know, uh, to that. Um, but I mean, it can also be and is um, gender critical feminism or extinction rebellion. I mean, I think that what I'm talking about here is is groups of people who are fiercely defining themselves by their group affiliation rather than as individuals. And that's okay because you can, you can have both. It's nothing to fear, I think, is what, is what I'd say. And I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of you know, my fellow centrist dads and liberals and progressives uh, of a certain age feel terribly besieged by this. But, but, but actually, if you look at it, it it's... It's a good thing. It, 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 there's a human energy in it, which we should always welcome uh, because it, it's emblematic of a human desire to make the world a better place. Someone asked, the more I listen to you, the more I have to think about the Agile Manifesto and Scrum. Key quotes are thriving at the edge of chaos and embrace change and diversity. It sounds to me that this could be a suitable approach for our politics. Yeah, I mean... Embracing change and diversity is really no more than embracing the world in which we live. And I think one of the most important things that any person can do uh, before they want to change the world is, un- is, as it were, taking its measure. And one of the saddest things is how many people still uh, find what they, you know, what's called diversity troubling, challenging, threatening. Um, you know, it's been with us for a very long time, actually. Uh, the atavisms that have been awoken are real, but the, the incre- increasingly and the, the, the more mobile we become in every sense of the word as, as citizens of the planet, the more diversity there's going to be. And actually, you know, it, we thrive on it commercially, culturally, and, you know, dare one say spiritually. I mean, I, th- I think that uh, it, it's nothing. It, it really is nothing to fear. Of course, it involves negotiations, and every pluralist society ever has engaged in those negotiations, and they have stalled a bit for reasons we discussed earlier. But I'm optimistic about the the capacity to renew that. I think that um, you know the, the the future belongs to those who are willing to to stretch out a hand and say, you know, what do we have in common? What are our differences? How can we you know, live together and learn from one another. And that, and that sounds like a bromide, but it actually, at the moment, with the populist right and its, and its proxies so dominant around the world, it's quite a radical idea. 
you know, in the world of Putin and Orban um, and uh, Le Pen challenging Macron and Trump still, you know, uh, threatening to set up a social media platform on Bolsonaro in Brazil. We need to be quite militant about that. Somebody asks, it's an important point, identity politics seems to move very quickly from issue to issue. I mean, it seems to is probably the, the, the important thing to say there, but how can we ensure that sustained effort takes place in order to, to progress meaningful change? That's an excellent question. Thank you. I think that, that that's at the heart of the matter because what you often find is that, as it were, the, 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 uh, the digital train clatters on and people whose feet have been held to the fire for a bit no longer feel under quite so much pressure. And I fear that's what's happened with me too, which was in 2017, 18, I was very optimistic that this was a moment from which we, could, we couldn't turn back. I'm now uh, less certain about that because I, I, you know, I do notice that, you know, that the, the representation of women at the apex and middle management companies is not improving fast enough, but also, you know, to get down to the, the nitty gritty, it's it's depressing how many, how few companies and employers have changed their, even their basic human resources department rules around this. I mean, th that's 101 stuff. It's 2021 now. It's nearly four years since Me Too, you know, happened. This was, should already have happened. And I, I think on, on that front, I also would call out politicians for not having done enough. And, and the media, you know, we, we, the media has a tendency to, to move on to the next thing, you know, not to, um, and one of the things we're trying to do at Tortoise with slow news is not to uh, lose patience with issues, but to return to them and to keep coming back and to monitor progress. You know, let's, we're, 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 we're approaching, for example, a, you know, tragic anniversary on May 25th, which is the killing of George Floyd. Really interesting to see at the time, there was a huge sort of inventory of things that we should have done, recommendations that had been made in racial justice reviews and, uh, and, and inquiries over the years. David Lammy pointed out, you know, how many of them have been implemented, he asked, very soon after George Floyd's killing. It'll be really interesting to see how many have actually been put into practice in, in the last 12 months. It's really interesting. I think your point about you know the media and just generally the, the things flare up very easily at the moment. I mean, you only you almost can look at Sarah Everard only two weeks ago. We need to keep that conversation going sort of fiercely and strongly about you know it's violence true. against women, and it, and it flares up and then and moves on to the next thing. And and also just your point about George Floyd. It's something that you say in your book, which I think is really important. Perhaps these things, when they flare up and they pass over, the problem is is that the reaction is as you talk about which is deeply frustrating, is often a very performative one. Social yeah. media enables everybody to get very outraged and to, you know, perhaps they could, what did we, after George Floyd, everybody on Instagram made their screen, you know, yeah. back. It's very easy to do that. It's, it's another thing altogether to actually act. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, to, you know, the, the, the issues raised are uh, in, in, in America as well as the UK about, uh, police reform about you know uh, at the moment affirmative action is against the law in this country uh, positive action is permitted in when you're employing hiring people you know we need to we need to have very conversations that may not be easy about 
how we're going to address all these problems. But the, you know, the bare statistics about racial justice, the health, the differences across ethnicities that have been revealed during the pandemic alone are, you know, uh, humbling. Um, You know, it is simply not right that it's twice, if you're a black man, uh, uh, of African descent, you're twice as likely to die of COVID in London than if you're a white man. I mean, that's, that's, uh, and then there are gender differences too. Um, And, you know, they all require, in the end, practical measures and political will to drive them through. Now, I'm not against, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to light a candle or, you know, do something on Instagram that, 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 you know, that's a, that can be a very reflective way of, of, of acting, but it doesn't actually improve the lot in, in and of itself. It doesn't approve anyone's position. It only makes a difference if it leads inexorably to action. And I think that's going to be the, one of the great challenges of the 2020s. And it's an exciting challenge, which is how do we move from virtue signaling to virtue implementation. It's a very big step, but you know, why not try it? Thank you so much to all of you for for joining us. And Matt, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, it's been an absolute pleasure. Our guest on this week's episode of the How To Academy podcast was Matthew Dancona. And the presenter was Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. Matt is a regular How To Academy interviewer, and you can catch him in conversation with the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, next month. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.